You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It is August 20th, 2020. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And we've been talking about the Satipatthana Sutta, and we're on the, the fourth uh, of the, um, the uh, fourth foundations of mindfulness, or the uh, fourth pasture of investigation. And we talked about the first three of them last week, and this week we're going to talk about the remaining uh, two, really, which is the seven factors of uh, enlightenment and the Four Noble Truths. But embedded in the Four Noble Truths is the list of the, the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, which is the, 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 um, the way out of suffering. Um, one of the things um, to consider about this is that the first three, uh, pl- the first three aspects of this, uh, the body, uh, the um, the feeling quality and the, the mind are all about meditation and developing the meditation technique. Um, and then the fourth, the, the dhammas, is really how to use the meditation technique once you've developed it to explore uh, the insights that are appropriate for the uh, progress toward uh, classical enlightenment. Um, I mainly teach uh, the progress of insight because I, I, I like that quite a bit in terms of its specificity about what to practice. But the Buddha did not create that. That's a commentary um, that came uh, uh, 700, well, it's based on the Vasudhimaga, which was a text that was written about 700 years after the time of the Buddha. One of the things about the development of Buddha, uh, um, Buddhism in the world, and particularly in this period where we are in the West and the development of Western Buddhism, um, is that there's so much more access to knowledge and so much more access to different traditions and lineages. And we have created this kind of Western version of Dharma, which is really a kind of synthesis or a gathering of all of these different kinds of practice. And so it is, I think, in some ways useful to be able to touch into the original texts. Um, but um, unless you speak Pali, um, you're not actually ever dealing with the original text, you're dealing with the translation of an original text. Um, and so the the text that we mainly use now, I think, in Western Dharma is the uh, Analayo translation, which is now maybe, I don't know, what is it, 10 years old or 15 years old, something like that. Um, so the fe- seven factors of awakening are a way of to, to begin to examine the experience of the body-mind and how you make self and world so that you can see into the nature of that. We want you uh, to see clearly the three characteristics of existence, anatta, nicca, and dukkha. So anatta 
not self, anicca impermanence and dukkha, um, unsatisfactoriness or suffering or reactivity. Um, mainly that we live in a human body which will grow old, get sick and die, that we'll get some of the things that we want but we'll lose them. We won't be able to get some of the things that we want and we'll have to put up with some things that we don't want. And that somehow we'll have to be able to manage all of this so that we don't suffer uh, endlessly around this. One of the things about uh, seeing into the nature of no self is that once you recognize that you can get really caught up in identifying with the sense of self, and that that is the source of so much of the suffering that arises and that you experience that when you move out of that more into uh, being in awareness, you see that the, the, the degree to which you suffer in life drops away almost to nothing. And so it's definitely worth pursuing these insights, even though we might tenaciously grip onto them. The skill set that you need to develop are the seven factors of enlightenment are mindfulness. Um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the beginning part of it, they describe what a meditative state is, and ardency is one of them. That refers to energy. The amount of energy is not too great in the meditation so that the mind becomes restless. It's not too little so that the mind becomes sleepy. Sensory clarity so that you can tease apart the different uh, flows of sensing experience that are then woven together to create the experience of self and world. The third one is mindfulness which refers to awareness of the present moment. So you develop the skills set to be able to sustain awareness of the present moment. Investigation uh, of the nature of, the, uh, of reality is the next one. And so this is the, the process of exploring. So you use your meditation technique to explore some aspect of insight practice in order to discover the nature of uh, this experience of self and world, the true nature of it. The next one is energy, which I talked about, joy and rapture. So in these seven factors of uh, enlightenment, what we're really talking about is the way to get into a high concentration state or a jhanic state as a prelude to going into the investigation of um, of further dharmas uh, or dhammas. Um, in Vipassana jhana, in the Vasudhimaga, they talk about eight uh, stages of uh, jhana and also in the canonical version or the early uh, canon, they talk about eight stages, but they're slightly different in the two. In the first uh, stage of jhana in the uh, canon, you place and sustain your attention. And then uh, as you maintain awareness of the object of meditation, an energy arises in the body. That's called piti or rapture. Joy is sometimes the translation. And, uh, sukha arises next, that's bliss. And then you become one-pointed. So these five characteristics are the first jhana. In the canon, um, to move into the second jhana, it stabilizes. So awareness stabilizes. So you no, no longer need to uh, 
place your attention. You sustain awareness, PT arises, sukha arises, and nekagata's unpointedness. The third jhana then is uh, PT bliss, uh, rapture bliss, and one-pointedness. The fourth jhana then is uh, bliss and one-pointedness, and in the, the canon, the fifth jhana is the switch into equanimity. There, it's a little bit faster in the in the, the Sudhimaga. I think um, mainly we talk about the Sudhimaga when we talk about it, because that's mostly how I hear jhana practice described in the West. But so the first jhana is the same, all five characteristics. The second jhana is three characteristics. You no longer need to place or sustain. You settle in. The third jhana is just the bliss and one-pointedness. And then the fourth jhana, bliss uh, uh, falls away because it's too coarse and then you move into a state of equanimity. So one-pointed concentration around equanimity. So if you look at the, the seven factors of awakening, joy and relaxation, tranquility arises, concentration arises, equanimity arises. This is a description in the canon of the fifth uh, Vipassana jhana or um, in the later texts in the Sudhimaga, the fourth. From that place of high concentration, you would then uh, move to explore. Um, let's see if I can find the next list. I'd like to go off the lists because my mind has a tendency to um, stray on its own, and I like it to be more, more accurate. Um, The Four Noble Truths are the main teaching of the Buddha. The first one is uh, the, the truth of the nature of suffering, that the human condition itself is uh, suffering. And uh, what that means very specifically is that you're born into a body which will grow old, which will get sick, which will die. Um, you get what you want, you lose it because everything is impermanent. Uh, you don't get what you want, you have to put up with what you don't want. And the third is this subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is actually the way that you would have it if you were in charge of anything, which is a double-edged sword. You're not in charge of anything, really, and, and uh, it's not how you want it, really. Um, how do you come to terms with this, the nature of human, the human condition um, so that you're not constantly wanting it to be different than the way that it is fundamentally. Um, aging is something that you, you don't really even begin to introduce yourself to until you get into your 30s. Uh, the first 30 years of life, if you live that long, is you're growing and things are improving and getting better. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you tip over the top of the hill and it's a long slide down. and uh, you make an adjustment, usually in the 30s, about how it's going to be, and that lasts until your early 50s. And it's an interesting uh, an agreement that you make with yourself in your mind about how things are going to go on forever like this. Um, and then um, in sometime in the early to mid-50s, uh, uh, the aging process accelerates 
which is quite disturbing. I, um, when I started to study with Dan Brown, he gave me the pith instructions. And one of the preliminary instructions was to sit uh, for eight hours um, and contemplate every possible way that you think you could die and really feel it viscerally. And uh, at the beginning of the day, I thought, um, well, all right, I'll just imagine these scenarios. How, how bad could it be? But it said in the instructions that you need to do this practice until you're literally shaking with terror that you're going to die. And by the end of the day, I was literally shaking in terror that I was going to die uh, at some point because it's so hard to wrap your head around it. But this is the nature of the human condition. We are in, in this temporary existence, in this temporary life with these temporary conditions around us. And how do we manage that so that we can respond to the world that we find ourselves in in a skillful way that is ethical? and uh, in service to the community. Um, <clears throat> so tanha is a Pali word which means craving or desire or attachment. And that's the second one. That the cause of the suffering um, that we experience is this tenacious attachment that's gripping onto uh, this incarnation, this body, this idea of who we are. Um, when you go into the investigations around self, the investigation is this earnest, um, ardent investigation into the discovery of the seat of the self inside of you. Where is it actually uh, embedded? Where is it unchanging and permanent? Um, one of the things I notice about practice in the in the West is that we can easily grasp these things conceptually, but we never, uh, or uh, it's unusual to hear somebody talk about really going into this, this exhaustive search for the sense of self that is permanent and lasting to the point that you exhaust yourself looking for it. And, and it, it's only in those moments that you really are willing to let go of the idea that it's there and that it's permanent and it's ongoing. Um, because once you, once you really discover that it, it isn't, it makes the, the um, capacity not to identify and attach to it so strongly much, much easier. And then as that uh, grip uh, lessens, you become less and less attached and suffer less. In my own experience, when I really began to see into the nature of self and not self and to lose the capacity really to identify with it strongly, the level of suffering just fell away. And it was mind-blowing to me that I could have lived for so long in such a high degree of suffering, identified so strongly with this sort of hodgepodge of, of selfing events and that when, when you don't have to do that, how much less you suffer, how much uh, easier it is to really roll with the experiences that happen and respond in a better way. 
when I was uh, studying with Shinzen so many years ago, uh, he described the, that experience as a manicured, highly formed and meticulously maintained garden surrounded by a wall that had a gate in it. And on the outside of the wall was just a complete uncultivated jungle. And that if you could move effortlessly through the gate, then uh, each time the sense of self became confining or painful, you could simply slip out of it and then slip back in and create a different version of it. It did not have all of that suffering in it. Um, but in the beginning, operating the latch on the gate was the problem that sometimes you could come in and go out, but it was unreliable whether you could get out. And sometimes you could get stuck on either side of it. But getting stuck on the side where you aren't able to manifest the self when you need it is equally uh, problematic because you don't function very well in that state. Whereas being trapped in uh, identification with the self uh, is that place of, uh, or is the cause of it, tanha, craving, desire, attachment is the cause of that suffering. Uh, the third one is that. Uh, you can, uh, through renunciation or letting go of this, through cessation, nerota is the term, come out of that and see clearly that that isn't actually what's real. Nerota is a term that means the cessation of awareness. Um, Awareness is almost always part of our experience. And so paying attention to when it's there and when it isn't there is an interesting thing to do. Uh, mainly in the ordinary experience of daily life, the only time you experience Narota is when you're in uh, deep sleep, which can last say up to an hour or so in the middle of sleeping. Most of the time, awareness is present in sleeping because if you're dreaming and you're aware that you're dreaming, your awareness is present. The other common experience is the use of, of some anesthesia, an anesthetic that would kill uh, awareness. We don't uh, use uh, anesthesia in surgery, for instance, to kill pain. We use it to kill awareness, so any of those will work. So the loss of awareness produces the experience then of the system coming back online, if you can tolerate a computer metaphor. You go into cessation, and then um, in the literature, and also many people describe this experience, the first thing that comes back as awareness begins to uh, uh, return is sound and then light comes back. But it's completely un, undefined, uh, unformed, uh, this uh, experience of the enlightened self. Uh, this is very particular to the Theravada maps. And then there exists the sense of the enlightened self arising. Um, but there's no language, there's no name for anything. It's just this sort of wondrous, uh, joyful experience of uh, exploring what is new since everything is new. There's no database 
Uh, and there's no perceptual database yet online. And then as the perceptual database comes back online, everything solidifies, everything is attached to, and everything becomes a uh, conceptual reality. But because you've come from this place of cessation of neurota, you see very clearly that these are all constructions that you make in the mind. And so it becomes very difficult to believe in a sense of self. It becomes very difficult to believe in the, the ideas and constructions you make about yourself. In the Theravada Four Path Model, uh, of enlightenment, that first uh, experience of Naroche is equated to stream entry or the first path of uh, enlightenment, which is uh, the four path Theravada model is based on the eradication of the 10 fetters. The first one is um, awareness that religious ceremony is not the same thing as enlightenment. The second is that you see through the solidity and permanence of self because you've had the direct experience of it not even being present at all. And the third is the eradication of doubt, that the path, this path leads to enlightenment. And which brings us to the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, which is that the Eightfold Path is the path to uh, enlightenment. So you learn to meditate, you develop your meditation technique, and then you apply the meditation technique toward the investigation of particular insights that will lead you in the direction of uh, liberation uh, in the canonical sense of this. Um, this is only for male monastics. Um, and yet in the West, um, the, the Dharma is available to everyone, monastics uh, or not, mostly we're householders. Um, there's no restriction on uh, um, practice based on sex where there is in Asia. Um, <clears throat> so you take your meditation technique and you apply it to investigating something. In the canon, it's only about the direction in, in pursuit of an enlightenment uh, in a classical sense. But in the West, we often use meditation for other purposes. There's other types of insights that arise when you're meditating, psychological insights, insights about um, something you're planning, insights about things that have happened in the past. Um, all of those things arise. In the canon, it's just very narrowly focused on the straight path toward uh, enlightenment. And I think that that's a very wor worthy goal for everyone who's practicing. But I don't also think that, it, that the other insights um, that uh, arise in doing the practice have no utility. Uh, because our householder's life is so different than a monastic life, we need to be able to, to find a way to practice and, and develop uh, these insights at, at the same time that we uh, maintain our householder's life. So in looking at the Four Noble, the Eightfold Path, as this particular map, 
we often talk about them being divided into three categories. Um, the moral category, the meditation category, and the insider wisdom module. The first uh, is right view, and right resolve is the second one. These are both considered part of the insight path. So right view is our actions have consequences, death is not the end. Our actions and belief have consequences after death. The Buddha uh, followed and taught a successful path out of this world uh, and uh, the other world. Right view to see things clearly. One of the interesting things about the different kinds of Buddhism that are taught, and often in, in the West, there's a, a preference toward the Mahayana or the Bodhisattva vow, which is this idea that we continuously reincarnate, even if we are enlightened and for the benefit of all beings so that all beings can become enlightened. But in the Theravada map, that isn't necessarily so. Um, you. Uh, proceed down the path of enlightenment until you get to the point that you're enlightened enough that you no longer are reincarnated. And so you escape the, the wheel of uh, life and death or uh, you come out of suffering completely. One of the things I notice about myself in this is that because I'm Western, I have this idea that science is correct and that these metaphysical descriptions are therefore necessarily metaphors and don't actually describe the world the way that it is. Um, when I go to Myanmar to sit with Sayado Indika, uh, one time he said to me, uh, George, you have that sharp Western mind, so you can't actually see what's right in front of you, uh, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, and he was talking about somebody flying on piti, literally from one place to another. Um, Dan says that in the West, science has become the place of the miraculous. And so that we'll listen to some description of something. And as long as it's in the language of science, we'll accept the miraculousness of it without too much pause. But if it's in a, in a kind of woo-woo spiritual vocabulary, we'll have a really hard time uh, accepting it. Um, how do you know in this description um, whether this is true or not, whether there is reincarnation or there isn't, whether uh, you can practice in such a way that you could remove the possibility of reincarnation? Um, that you can see things the way that they are and understand that there is no death because there is reincarnation. That every action that you take has its consequence. So this is the, these two strong pillars of Western of Buddhism, karma and reincarnation. In the West, if you look at the mathematicians, they say that in the beginning you, you, you're taught mathematics well enough to uh, 
disbelieve the metaphysics of religion. And then there's a long tunnel of pursuing different kinds of scientific in investigation where the most natural response is a kind of agnosticism or atheism. And then you drop out of the bottom into uh, uh, an introduction to quantum mechanics and suddenly uh, the whole metaphysical or, or arrangement makes sense again. And you can see in the descriptions of uh, um, quantum mechanics, uh, a description of the world that matches very closely to the metaphysical description of it. And so that you go from that atheistic period into a theistical mindset, but it's based on quantum mechanics and science rather than on the the uh, medieval descriptions of the, the nature of the world. Uh, I think that this is actually one of the more exciting aspects of practice and the more exciting aspects of exploring and discovering this. And so I really do urge you to, to begin uh, that kind of exploration so you can make sense of it. Um, but to see clearly that, that you're in a human body, that it suffers if you believe in, in the sense of self, in the sense of world that you create, the mental formations that you make, and that you don't have to suffer in that way if you don't want to. If you practice and see into this, you, you, that stops. Um, the second one is resolve or intention. Uh, the giving up of home, the adopting of life as a religious mendicant in order to follow the path. This concept aims at peaceful renunciation into an environment of non-sensuality, non-ill will, into loving kindness, away from cruelty, into compassion. Such environment aids contemplation of impermanence, suffering, and not self. And this is again um, the question of um, how then do we all become uh, itinerant mendicants <laughs> and maintain our householder status? Who here is thinking of? becoming a monastic. So it's usually not that many. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, I like to do is to go to Asia and, and go to the monasteries and take a look around. And, and I can tell you the more I go, the less likely it is that I will ever become a monastic. <laughs> but I think it's good to see. So you really have a sense of what's happening. Uh, and to come back uh, and, and to practice in our culture, uh, which is, you know, uh, there is no shortage of suffering in our culture at this, at this particular point. Um, we've done a fantastically poor job at managing the, the pandemic, the environment, and so on. Um, so the resolve for householders is then to practice, right? And how do you organize your life, the time, energy, and resources that you have so that you can adequately practice, so that you can make progress on the path, so that you can live a life that has a little suffering and is ethical and, and uh, you can be of service to the community, which is in such need. Right speech, no lying, no rude speech, no telling one person what another person says about him to cause discord or harm to their relationships. 
Can you monitor and control your speech? This is often one of the more challenging areas because it can be so easy to uh, step into territory that would be regrettable. Right conduct or action to refrain from killing, stealing, se sexual misconduct. So this is the ethical training. For householders, typically it's the five uh, precepts we talk about, not to, uh, to refrain from causing harm through killing, to, to refrain from causing harm through um, lying or stealing, to refrain from causing harm through sexual uh, conduct, to refrain from causing harm through speech, to refrain from causing harm by imbibing intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. Thaknath Han has expanded this to consumption, which I quite like. Right livelihood, um, not selling weapons, not selling poisons or intoxicants, not raising animals for the slaughter. Right effort to prevent the arising of unwholesome states, generating wholesome states. So this is a, a process of recognizing when wholesome states are present and suppressing them, recognizing when, uh, did I say unwholesome? Recognizing when unwholesome states are present and suppressing them, recognizing when, when wholesome states are present and sustaining them, uh, recognizing the underlying cause of the arising of unwholesome states and suppressing them, and recognizing the cause of wholesome states and foster their development and arising. Right mindfulness, um, right intention, being mindful of the dharmas, the teachings that are beneficial to the Buddhist path, the Vipassana movement, uh, sati is interpreted as bare attention, never be absent-minded, being conscious of what is one doing. Uh, this encourages the awareness of impermanence of body, feeling, and mind, as well as the experience of the five aggregates, the five hindrances, the four true realities, and the seven factors of arising. So the, uh, the earlier lists that we talked about. So effort is not to put too much effort in so the mind and body becomes restless and agitated on too little so it's sloth, you're engaged in sloth and torpor to be in that middle balance place. The right mindfulness, that you're in awareness of the present moment nearly conditioned, nearly constantly and uh, right, so concentration is the last. And that mainly describes uh, the jhana states. In listening to the description of the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Six Sense Spheres and, um, and so on, is that an adequate path for you to organize your practice in such a way that you can be tuned into the insights that are necessary for you to reach uh, classical enlightenment. So, um, perhaps, 
Um, but the descriptions um, and how to practice are described in many different ways by many different sources. And so what I think it's important is to begin to consider uh, what it is that I need to understand and to know in order to organize my practice. So firstly, there is the development of the capacity to meditate. And then there's what do I explore with my capacity to meditate. Um, and I often find myself more inclined toward the progress of insight, the Mahasi, excuse me, the Mahasi um, uh, text on the 16 stages, because uh, the, uh, I like a lot of instructions and I like very specific things to focus on, and that's easier for me. Uh, and so that tends to be why I gravitate there. Um, but this teaching is the one that really has gone out into the world from uh, and is reputed to be said by the Buddha himself that has then launched uh, Zen and uh, Tibetan practices from that. Is that making sense? So this is the, this is the, the text itself. I thought that the, in the next class that we would talk about um, ideal parent figure protocol and the, the Satipatthana Sutta as ways of investigating that the, Satip, uh, the ideal parent figure protocol is a kind of um, lift from the Mahamudra Tibetan practices of visualization but it, it, it really opens a window into exploring how we create conceptual reality, which is really one of the things that we need to understand. Um, we have the, uh, the capacity to sense particular objects, and when we have contact with one of them, uh, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's completely undifferentiated and unfixated. Um, it's evaluated for urgency, I like to say. Is it, does it need urgent attention? Is it not that important and can we get to it later? Is it pleasant and, and do we have time for that experience? It's then compared to the perceptual database and this is the experiences that we've already had and made sense out of. It includes what we decided to do in response and the outcome of that and that it also includes the capacity of the imagination and to understand how to respond. And if there's a close enough match in that database to this undifferentiated sensing experience, then that undifferentiated sensing experience becomes pushed out as conceptual reality. I think that it's important to understand uh, that one of the, the, the senses of identification with things as solid and the way that we get attached to them is that we think that we're taking in what's out there and creating uh, an understanding of that. Then actually what's happening is our capacity to sense is taking in, in sensing data and then we're converting it internally into that solid conceptual reality and then projecting that out there. So that we have, based on our condition, created this appearance of the solid world, which is really very particular 
to ourselves and the conditioning that we have, that it's not necessarily an accurate representation of what's out there. It's a representation of what's out there means to us um, instead. And that that's really what we want to be able to see in each moment so that we can understand how we're creating that experience. And then uh, when we were able to do that, basically in real time, we can exist in this, this experience of how we've made everything without having to be frightened by that uh, experience. Um, so much of our sense of security when we, we attach to things comes from the, the idea that we're, create, we're experiencing self and world as it, as it really is, as if there were an objective experience of that uh, and often that everybody has the same experience that we do. Uh, and that really isn't, isn't the way that it is. How is that for everybody? Uh, everybody's still settled and <laughs> um, to be free is to allow this uh, constant back and forth of taking in the information and creating something out of it and taking it and creating something out of it, constantly investigating whether the way that you've made it is an accurate representation of what's there. Um, and if it isn't adjusting it so that it's more like what's there. And then being open to communicating your experience uh, to someone else so that you can get a sense of what they're making out of the experience. Even if you're having the same experience, you're each making something out of it that is likely to be different than what the other person is doing. And in uh, allowing the other person to explain to you in this very open way how they're experiencing something and and, and then they're allowing you to uh, do the same. You really get to have a sense of intimacy about how they are and, and how they've been conditioned and what their experiences have been. And then to, to be really uh, there with them in a way that if you don't allow this doesn't happen. So let's do a period of meditation. Um, I want to do a see here, feel meditation, and we'll begin to just stack up different aspects of it. So so how did that go? Comments, questions? George, at the, at the, um, the last instruction, did yep. you say self? Self. Self. I didn't hear you and then I got lost. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I notice in my one of the things that happens um, a lot is that we we conflate self and awareness, and so we don't see the rising and passing nature of um, um, ah. In a minute, uh, I'll answer the chat. Um, the um, <clears throat> The sense of self arises, but if we're attached to the sense of self and there's some fearfulness around it falling away, we jump into awareness and hold that experience. And then the next sense of self arises and we jump into the sense of self. And that's the, one of the ways in which uh, the self then tends to percep, uh, perpetuate the appearance of ongoingness. Um, 
but I find sometimes in sitting that it's hard to differentiate the self-experience from the awareness experience. The awareness experience would be there um, uh, and watch the self-experience reacting to the sensing experience. But if you uh, can really pull them apart, I think you can see more clearly whether the sense of self is there or not. Am I, am I the meditator watching this object, which would be the sense of self? Or am I just embedded in the experience of the object and it's awareness that knows that and there's no experience of self? Good. Unmute, uh, uh, Franz, if you want to, to say something. Someone else? George, I have a question. Okay. Um, but as soon as you start noting, you know, see, hear, or feel, and then whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and, you know, the first three instructions that you gave us, right? Aren't you already observing? So there's... Well, awareness there be a sense of knowing self, right? that. But is, is it the experience of I'm the meditator and I'm, I'm doing this meditation, or is it awareness knowing what's happening? I'm not so sure I know the difference. <laughs> Maybe that's right. the problem. Which is why <laughs> the investigation, to see if you can pull that apart. Okay. Because what happens, I mean, this, this is a very common thing. We identify awareness as self, and actually it's different than self. So the arising and passing of self happens, and awareness uh, is there, and we move between the self-experience and awareness in, in terms of our identification, but we don't distinguish between them. And so this is the process of sensitizing yourself to that and beginning to pull them apart. Okay, thanks. Yep. Someone else? <laughs> George? Yes. I, um, so I have a question, I just need clarification. Um, I had a really lovely conversation with my mother this afternoon. Uh -huh. so I was replay, uh, I replayed back some of the conversation in my head as I was, uh, meditating. So it would have been here, pleasant thinking self. Um, it was versus it would probably be um, pure neutral. Um, pleasant, uh, it refers to the quality of the sensing experience itself. So were you hearing something uh, that without the content was pleasant to hear? Or no, it, was, was that just neutral? I labeled it pleasant because I was in audio and I was replaying some words she said. So that would be content. That would be content and not feeling tone. Right. Okay. So that would be third foundation then. So then um, you could be equanimous with that or you could be craving it or aversive to it or whatever. Um, what your reaction to that was. But to enjoy something and to be uh, equanimous with the enjoyment of it would still be equanimity. 
Okay, so so the correct labeling would have been here. Um, neutral, neutral peace. Peace self. Right. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Someone else. Um, George, um, I really struggle with not labeling, or I want to label things that I don't want as neutral. Uh -huh. um, so like physical sensations that you're telling me are neutral, but I don't want them. So I want to label <laughs> them unpleasant. <laughs> Can okay. you just, yeah. So I have a uh, reflux. It causes a burning in the back of my throat. It makes me slightly hoarse. It's the, the sensation itself is unpleasant, the burning sensation. So I would label that feel unpleasant. Um, but then I'm, I'm annoyed with it. So that's not wanting. Um, When you say that you don't want something, is it that third stage of not wanting the content of it, or is it the second stage of what is the quality of the sensing of it? Um, I, um, I guess a lot of the physical sensations are just sort of mildly, well, I want to say that they're unpleasant, but I would just say that suddenly like the, the dullness of my seat comes to my attention. And um, so physical sensations of the body, so touch sensations and pressure sensations, uh, in, according to the Satipatthana Sutta can be uh, unpleasant. Um, but okay. uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling are, are by the nature of them neutral. And then the, the capacity, except for the addition of pressure, and then um, the sensations on the body itself can be pleasant. So it's only the touch sensations that have the capacity to be pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. Um, but investigate it and see if you can pull them apart. One of the things about this is that the, the, sense, the sensing experience and the feeling tone aspect are ultimate reality. And conceptual reality is whether we want it or not, and uh, whether the self-experience is there, whether we believe that things are impermanent, whether we believe that we can escape uh, the human condition. Arthur? Um, I, I, I don't quite get the, to me, unpleasant is always associated with not wanting and pleasant is always associated with wanting. So to me, whenever I'm doing that, there's almost no separate um, assessment. As right. I was like unpleasant, as soon as I think unpleasant, I'm like, okay, not wanting. Um, I guess I'm, I feel like I'm missing something there because you said there are two separate parts of, you know, you were just saying now that there's two separate parts. So, Well, one is the quality of the sensing experience and one is what you make it into and whether you want it or not. So what you're, we're trying to discern is 
ultimate reality from conceptual reality. Um, but what you, you may find is that even unpleasant sensations in the body, if you have enough equanimity with them, you can be at peace with them, even if the quality of the sensing is unpleasant. But that the, the nature of Vedna or feeling tones is very slow to change and the nature of the mind is very quick to change in relationship to it. Um, so it just sounds like they're too tightly compacted and you need some more space around them. So slow it down a little bit and see whether or not it's, that helps with the spaciousness. So they uh, do the, the sensory clarity of what sensing experience it is, then explore the Vedna aspect of it, and then see what you make it into and then relate that to the pleasant, unpleasant, or sorry, the uh, wanting, not wanting, thinking more. Peace. Thinking is usually associated with who cares. This isn't interesting enough to me. I'm bored. I need to think about something else. This is too ordinary. And then is the self doing the meditation or are you simply in the flow of the experience of meditating? In the beginning, our clarity isn't good enough. Our resolution isn't good enough. If, you, if I can use the uh, uh, metaphor that Shinzen uses, which is the micro microscope. You're looking at the slide and you can't see the little bacteria floating around in there because you're looking with the naked eye. And then you look through the 10x lens and you can sort of make out a dot that's moving around and then you switch it to the 100x and you can see very clearly uh, all of the details about it. So in the beginning of practice, it's hard to be able to pull all these different aspects apart so you're not sensitive enough to them. But the more that you practice, the more sensitive you become. And so the things that were harder to see with the naked eye become more visible. And then once you really are able to pull them apart well enough, you can see clearly what's happening. Good enough? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right. Someone else? I'm wondering, George, if the third category is more related to craving and aversion uh, well, than the second, ca the second category. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, craving is wanting. Aversion is not wanting. Thinking is unconsciousness. And peace is equanimity. So it's, it's the same. Someone else? Was that good enough? Thank you, George. All right. Oh, the Hollywood Reporter article came out. It says here that it came out, but there are no pictures. Hmm. I didn't see it yet. I'll take a look. I googled it and uh, I found it online. Yeah, so it's on there online. When did it come out? <clears throat> uh, I well, I found it. I think Tuesday night or Wednesday, but I'd have to go check. I don't remember. I didn't check the date of it. All right. Thanks. Sure. All right. Um, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate practicing with you. Um, mm -hmm. 
I have this class on uh, Thursday nights. I have a class, a beginner's class on Tuesday night. We're coming toward the end of that series. A couple of more of those, and then we'll begin again with the concentration practice. The third Saturday of the month, we have the Dharma Mats class. We've covered the first five stages of the, that, and we'll do six through 10 in the next class, which is coming up in September. Um, I'm starting a level one class, uh, which will be a series of three day longs. I think in October, we're going to do a meditation and attachment for relationships class about collaborative relationships. We're going to do a virtual retreat in December, the week between uh, Christmas and New Year's, a six day retreat. Um, all of those should be on the website, so take a look and uh, if they're interesting to you, go ahead and register for them. We'd be happy to have you. Um, this class is offered on a Donna basis. Uh, I offer the teaching freely, and then we do hope that you'll donate to us. That's what helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Uh, there should have been a link in the email uh, that you received, and also on the website, there's a link for the donation. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.